Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxell. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxell's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. So we're here with the Holly Troxell podcast. My name is Brad Fraser. I'm a partner at Holly Troxell in Boise, Idaho, where I practice internet law, information technology law, and intellectual property law. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Paul Wilch. Paul is our CIO, CTO, and even though he doesn't like to call himself our CISO, he really is our chief information security officer. Paul and I have worked together for a number of years on internet matters and information technology matters and cybersecurity issues. And so we thought it would be a good idea for Paul and I to speak for a few minutes together today on the podcast and talk about recent developments in cybersecurity. So Paul, as you know, in watching the news and in even looking at any page on the internet, you know that cybersecurity is a big deal now over the past three weeks, even more so than than in the last six months. At least that's been my experience. Well, what have you seen, Paul, as a cybersecurity expert? What have you seen recently in the news that's kind of got your attention in the cyber front? Well, more uh, supply chain attacks, uh, say JBS Foods, uh, and then a Colonial Pipeline, uh, Power Grid. Uh, I mean, there are so many just coming back to back. And um, every every other month, seems like there's something new that you think maybe wouldn't happen, but it did. Or someday it's going to happen, and now it does. You know, I saw that the CEO of Colonial Pipeline was called to testify before Congress, Paul. And he was trying to make excuses as to why the most critical petroleum pipeline in the country was subject to a ransomware hack. Did you, have, by a chance, have a chance to see any of his testimony before Congress? If not, I can summarize for you. Well, from what I know is they paid uh, $4.4 million um, to avoid uh, disclosure of the sensitive information. Um, and it was uh, shut down on May uh, 7th for almost a week. But the not interesting thing, but the thing that we see in the cybersecurity community, see a lot, is they didn't have multi-factor authentication. Um, and they also had uh, possible password reuse. And the other one was also uh, they had uh, legacy VPN accounts. They were active. They weren't being used, but they didn't shut them down or terminate them. So that was uh, that was interesting. So Continental Pipeline paid $4.4 million, as you said. JBS, the foodstuffs supplier, supply, paid $11 million. Paul, what's your personal opinion on paying these ransomware attacks? Why don't you, maybe you could first of all help us understand, what, what is a ransomware attack? Is it a hack? What is it, Paul? And then, and then your thoughts on, do you think you should be paying these hackers, these ransomware hackers? Well, um, malware, ransomware attack is when your uh, company or firm or um, personal devices get infected with um, a software program that will encrypt your data and um, then somebody tells you, they notify you that you can get, uh, you have to pay usually Bitcoin or some kind of monetary uh, uh, finance um, to get your data back. But now they're also doing, I think they called it a double threat, and then there was a, another one called a triple threat, where they'll take your data first, then they'll encrypt it, then they'll start to work, with, work at you that way and trying to create a, a stronger, tougher deadline, right? They'll start releasing information. Apple had one, I think it was in May, where they uh, got the information and it was right before a product release. So the hacker group started releasing some of that information before the product was actually rele uh, released and they were asking Apple to pay $50 million. Um, so malware is just something that basically just takes your, your data and information for hostage. And as far as in my opinion on paying for it uh, or not paying, I don't think anybody can make that decision 
for the other people. You can criticize whoever, but it's you're not in that moment. You don't know the information from for those company that's being released. Um, in all these situations, nobody really knows what's going on internally uh, and what's going through those emotions or what other finances are on the line. So, you know, I I just I don't know. It's it's hard to second guess what these guys did. I mean, the CEO for the pipeline was, I think, uh, sad that he had to pay $4.4 million. But on the news, he said, you know, he would do it again because he needed to restore that critical part of our nation's infrastructure. Uh, So, you know, you're right. But let me ask you a question. As an outsider, Paul, and you're a a security expert, as an outsider, I'm sitting here and I'm asking myself rhetorically, gee, if they had simply had all of their data backed up off-site, would they have had these problems? Unknown, again, a lot of times I know people are, are very confident about their backups, but then again, when it happens, you don't know. Uh, sometimes these uh, these ransomware gangs or the, the bad actors are, could be in your system for a year. So your backups, they're, they're good, but you don't know when the person was in. You just never know. Um, I think it'll make a person more secure, but until that actually happens and somebody actually threatens you, um, you don't know. You know, it's a good point. So what are you advising your clients, Paul, when they come to you and say, Paul, <clears throat> I've seen everything in the news about ransomware attacks. What can we do to best protect our enterprise against a ransomware attack? Let's be proactive for a minute, Paul. What are you going to tell Holly Troxel uh, or another one of your clients or one of my clients to protect itself against a ransomware attack? And, and then let's talk together about, well, you know, despite all of our proactive efforts, we've still suffered an attack. What do we do? But first, Paul, what do you tell clients to do to perhaps anticipate and and try to prevent such an attack? Well, always keep your uh, software, your equipment up to date. Uh, One of the biggest things is patching. So always make sure everything's patched, uh, including personal devices. A lot of people don't get phones for uh, five years or more. Well, after a few years, uh, the manufacturer starts, say, Verizon or Samsung, uh, they stop making uh, updates for those. So then your phone is a security device. You get an email and you click on a, a bad link from an email on your phone and you could be um, maybe not ransomware, but they could start getting your data from there. Um, I would say patching is a big thing. What do you think about employee training? I've always read that it's important to train your employees against a phishing attack. What does that phrase mean, Paul? Train your employees against a phishing attack. Employee training, I, I for sure. Um, most companies will fish their employees, meaning sending fake emails saying like, hey, um, here's a $25 gift card for you for answering these questions. Click here to fill out the registration. Um, so that's, that could be a, a, phishing, a form of a phishing attack because you want to get your employees used to getting these um, or being suspicious of all these emails that come in because they come in all the time. Um, every company is going to get an email from a, a random Gmail account posing as perhaps a CIO or uh, their manager or their boss or somebody from accounting saying, hey, can you do me a quick favor? Mm -hmm. And all you can do is warn people to not click on an unknown email or an unknown attachment. And so now we're seeing a lot of emails that have a legend on them that says warning, external email. This came from outside our company, so be careful. I know here at Holly Troxel, you've implemented some very, very good phishing uh, uh, traps yeah, most of the times the phishing ones luckily are not the best, but they do, a lot of them are basic. You know, the Gmail, the Google Drive, sending those out, those shares, those are pretty dangerous. Right. Uh, because anybody can create a, a, a Gmail account and you get your Google Drive and s- share out a file. Same thing with the OneDrive, Microsoft OneDrive. Those are also bad. Uh, phishing during COVID also went up, I can't remember, like 
some insane amount, like a thousand percent or something, you know, and they were attacking people at home because a lot of people were using their home devices to log in, uh, which probably they weren't up to date on security patches or it was a shared uh, PC with their kids or spouse or whoever. Um, so I think that was really dangerous at the time. So before we talk about what to do if you're the victim of an attack, Paul, what are your thoughts on why now? Why the recent increase in cyber attacks? Is it because the news is more aware of it? I have an opinion. While you're thinking of your answer, I have an opinion. I think it's because of the proliferation of cryptocurrency. It's much more common now. And so, you know, five years ago, if you said, we've got your data, pay with Bitcoin, nobody would know how to do that. But now, when you say, pay $4 million in Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin, People know what that is yep. because of Elon Musk. Do you think the pro proliferation of cryptocurrency is maybe behind the rise in some of these recent crypto cyber uh, cyber attacks? I think it could be, but also, uh, you know, they have uh, ransomware as a service now, where you can rent out organizations. You can you can rent out these uh, bad uh, ransomware, say, botnets or attacks, and just go attack a company. So it's it's as a service now, and they have it really streamlined. Where these organizations, it's like a call center when you want to get your data back. They really try to make it uh, nice for you, and um, mm. yeah, and they they just they just move fast. And the 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 uh, the range, I guess, if you want to call it that, they can attack so many people at uh, at once. What do you think about the fact that you know all data is now online, right? If there's if there's nothing to attack, there's going to be no ransomware attacks. But now everybody's data is in the cloud. And if everybody's data is in the cloud, it seems to me that that's a rich target, or a target-rich environment, as we made famous in Top Gun, a target-rich environment <laughs> for hackers. If ever, all data is in the cloud, Paul, it's just an invitation, isn't it, for somebody to come out and attack your data? You know, that's that's a mixed because before it was, uh, you know, say a system admin or somebody who configured an email exchange server at their company on their own, and maybe they just read a few books or they weren't certified or they just didn't have the knowledge or misconfiguration. Misconfigurations are still... Uh, one of the uh, the uh, top reasons why uh, people are getting breached too, um, you know, in the cloud, in Amazon or Azure, wherever you are, wherever your data is. But, uh, you know, that's that's a good question, and I, I just I, it could go either way. If you're if you're, you know, for uh, the the thought of everything should be stay on uh, on premises, then you could argue that way. But if you think everything should just be in the cloud in different services, you could argue that way too. Uh, because you know, if you but if you do go in the cloud, you're going to have the engineering services and security doing you know, taking care of your your data backups, and it is cost effective. You know, if you and I decided to have a, a cottage industry, Paul, in ransomware, and we went out and got an account at one of these ransomware for hire websites, which you and I could do, we know how to do that, right? And we're looking out for a good target. I don't know that I would pick a, a Colonial Pipeline or a JBS Foods. I'd pick like a small town in Kansas or, or a small town in Iowa. And in fact, isn't that what we're seeing, school right? School districts or school small districts and small towns. Yeah. Because if I can if I can attack a hundred of those and get five thousand in Bitcoin for each one, that's five hundred thousand dollars as opposed to one high risk attack where the FBI is gonna be all over me, right? Yep, yep. So what's the what's the moral there then for a smaller enterprise? like a small town or a small bank or a, a small city or a small university. What's the moral there, Paul? So that, that's that again, is uh, the small towns, they can't afford, most, most of the time, probably they can't afford a high-end IT team or software or anything like that. So it, it's tough to do. And when they pay, uh, their cybersecurity insurance, if they have it, will probably cover it. Um, that's really tough to do when you when you don't have enough finances in your small town like that. So what do you tell clients, Paul, when they say, Paul, I've, I've been hacked, I've suffered a ransomware attack? 
What, what are the what are the first steps toward remediating that? Because you and I both know we're not going to stop every attack. It's just impossible. A lot of money's being spent on the front end with patches and experts and training, but these hacks still occur. We can talk all day about why. I think the better question is, when you're hacked, Paul, what do you do? I think the ultimate, you know, first you would do your inter- incident response plan. After that, the the ultimate end goal for larger companies, even small business, depending. Uh, for me personally, I would just contact the FBI. At the end goal, after we did our incident response plan, all that, uh, you know, notify clients, everything like that. But it would definitely get the the law enforcement involved, the FBI involved. Uh, a lot of companies may feel uncomfortable about that, but when the FBI is in there, they're just looking for specifically what went, what happened, how that hack happened. Um, Again, this, from what I understand, a lot of companies are hesitant to contact the FBI. It's many times I, I saw on 60 Minutes actually last week that sometimes people who've been hacked are embarrassed to come out publicly. And, and so they instead of just in calling, instead of calling the FBI, they will simply pay the ransomware and, and get their data back. Yes, and I think, um, I don't think the Colonial Pipeline, I don't think they notified uh, authorities uh, right away. I think they waited a little bit and tried to deal with them themselves. And I think now they have to uh, notify within 12 hours. I can't remember. Uh, that's something I'd have to look up again. But yeah, right. for sure, it is a lot of embarrassment. And maybe even the IT person, the head IT, whether it's a CISO or IT manager, maybe they're, they feel that they're going to lose their job or they're embarrassed and they're going to try to cover it up themselves and just kind of hide it. You know, one thing that many of our listeners may not know, Paul, is that when you have a cyber event like this, even if you pay the ransomware, and even if you stay quiet about it, and even if you don't say anything about it, because of the nature of a ransomware attack or any sort of incursion, and you know this because we've talked about it before, Paul, the, the hacked en- entity or enterprise has to notify affected parties. They, they can't just keep it a secret. They have to, at some point, notify everybody whose data was potentially compromised. It, it would be rare for me to think of a situation where there was a hack or a ransomware attack or an incursion and no personally identifiable information was affected. Maybe there are some of those, right? And you know where I'm going with this. When there's a hack, it places an obligation on the hacked party to notify everybody whose personal information might be compromised. And you and I know this as data breach, right? Because you have an obligation to report the data breach. What would you, tell me what your thoughts are, how how would an enterprise react to an incursion or a hack or a ransomware incident, knowing that they have to tell all of their customers, all of their clients of the event? I mean, how how are they going to react to that? I think they're they're ready to do that. And you see a lot of emails or um, if you look at the, the previous emails from data breaches, it's always something similar to we take data. We take data uh, security seriously. We take, you know, your your information seriously. There's nothing to do after, really. I mean, just basically apologize and say we're working on it. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, after a breach, um, it's kind of game over, uh, and you just have to rebuild because your reputation's gone. Uh, not only your, your not only your reputation, but your financial. You're probably going to lose if you're a big institute. Uh, maybe lose the trust of your clients um, and customers. For sure, reputation is might take a hit. But if you're big enough, then you can just rebound. Or if there are technical issues on why, maybe it wasn't actually your fault. Maybe it was a third-party vendor that got in through there. You know, one of the most uh, famous hacks, and probably one of the earliest, that really put it on the national radar was the Target hack, where they had malware installed on the credit card readers at the checkout counters. And Target seems to have famously recovered from that. Equifax was hacked and lost a lot of customer data. 
seems to be no problem. Facebook lost millions of customer records. So your point's well taken, right? The public, thank heavens, maybe, has a short memory, right, about these things. For sure. Yeah, uh, Facebook, uh, their data breaches, their their policies are changing all the time. People get mad, but they keep on using it. I think people are used to it now. Right. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that it has to be reported. So let's just talk just a little bit more about that. And then maybe toward the end of our discussion together, we can talk about cyber insurance and some of the developments there, Paul. But a company or an enterprise that's hacked can't just pay the ransomware and brush it under the rug and hope that it never gets national attention. Target probably wishes it never had to report, or Facebook, or JBS, or Colonial Pipeline. Why did these companies report these hacks? Why, Paul? Because the law requires them to. So this may be something that some of our listeners don't really know. If you're hacked, you have a positive obligation to notify. And unlike some legal things, there is no overarching federal law. You and I know from our discussions that every state has a different law that impacts when and how you have to report a cyber event. And if you wait too long, you're going to incur potential financial penalties and maybe even criminal penalties. What do you think we would be telling our listeners when they know that there is this disparate or divergent body of laws out there relative to how you report a cyber attack? What would you encourage them to do? Well, I think, I know we've talked about this before, but just get ready to be breached or prepare to be breached. Just get ready to take action. Next step. Don't just just don't just think you're not going to get breached because you, you maybe your your budget is 50% and you have a great budget and you have a great team. Um, I think you just need to be ready to take action, perhaps if there's a data breach. One of the earliest data breach experiences I had was probably now about eight years ago, which is a long time ago, but in the data breach world, you know, fairly recent, I had a client call me and say that they had lost 40,000 customer records. And it had been six months since Mm -hmm. the event had occurred. And so we began to research the possible repercussions. And we learned, well, there were records from 25 different affected states. And we began to look at the laws that they had to comply with, 25 different sets of laws. Some states said they had to report within 48 hours. The point being, Paul, they were clearly out of compliance with a lot of different laws. So we know that there are real-world examples of people who don't follow the laws and who are out of compliance and can suffer financial consequences. So did they know? When when were they breached? Did they try to hide it for that long, or did they know? So that I'm sure that has to do something. You with know, it, right? they just they, they knew, Paul. They knew of the hack. Right. They just didn't know of their reporting obligation. Got so it. that's why I think hopefully some of our listeners will see this as a service and go, oh, if I'm hacked, I have to report to the affected people. And there, there are some loopholes, and there are some things that we can do to try to avoid having to report. And the other issue, Paul, is that it's expensive to report. The, one of the metrics that I recently saw is that, and you've seen the same metric, $150 per affected person to do the report because you may have to send out a certified letter and you have to do remediation and you have to provide a reporting pipeline and maybe a toll-free number. And that was an old metric. It maybe is $200 per. So let's do the math. $40,000 40, records times 150 or 200 dollars and you know who's got a million dollars or eight hundred thousand dollars and just loose change sitting around it's expensive to have to address a data breach so what's what's the time for idaho it's as soon as you become aware that there's a chance 
that personally identifiable information is defined in the Idaho statute has been compromised, unencrypted data, by the way, unencrypted personally identifiable information, then as soon as practical, you have to notify the affected Idaho resident. So it, it doesn't say 48 hours, it just says as soon as practical. So what does that mean, right? And we just encourage our clients, of course, to just do it within a couple of weeks if they can. So now a lot of businesses, you know, uh, there could be a one-person business, two-person, 20,000 person. If it's a small business, say a two-person business, do they fall under the same laws? They do. They do. The Idaho statute doesn't make a differentiation based on the size of the hacked entity. In fact, it's a good question, Paul. I'm not aware of any state law that exempts you from compliance with the data breach reporting obligation because of the size of your enterprise. So we've identified, one, the fact that you have to report and you suffered dilution of brand and loss of goodwill. Two, you have the expense of having to report, sending out all those certified letters and giving them a year of life lock or whatever the case may be. Three, we've got something which is near dear to my heart, the threat of litigation. I'm sure, Paul, you've received, haven't you, in the past couple of years, a postcard that says you may have been affected by the target hack. Yep. Do you want to join into our class action or the Equifax hack or the Facebook hack? I know that I have. Have you ever have you ever received any of those notices and thought, hey, maybe I want to join the class here and maybe get five bucks off my next uh, credit report at Equifax? <laughs> to me, that's just another spam or phishing email that I receive. I, in my mind, that's what I see. Yeah. And so to help ameliorate some of these expenses, you and I have talked about the importance of cybersecurity insurance. Do you have any particular thoughts to share with our listeners about cyber insurance? I mean, I know I have some thoughts, but Paul, do you make any recommendations or do you have thoughts? What do you tell clients when they say, Paul, how do I get cyber insurance? Well, other than other than just have it, uh, no, I, I actually don't. Um, but I know every business should. Uh, no matter what your revenue, I, I would say, uh, is, uh, if you're a small business, maybe you only make 100000 a year, um, you need to be protected because the legal... Um, repercussions or ramifications, whatever you want to call it, could be really big for your business and, you, and possibly you personally. Not not including, you know, emotionally what you're going to go through. Um, I know there was a uh, small sandwich shop in, in Coeur d'Alene um, maybe 10 years ago. It got hacked and um, it went out of business. So just things like that because of the, the trust. So um, other than just getting cybersecurity, I don't have any, but I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. Well, cyber insurance is, is a really good tool because it can't solve all of the goodwill problems, of course, but a good cyber liability insurance policy, Paul, can provide you with, actually, I've seen the policies, they provide you with a PR response team to guide your social media response. Nice, right? nice. They pay the cost of sending out all those certified letters and pay for the one year of LifeLock. They pay to hire lawyers to defend you against the class action lawsuits that are going to come. They're, they pay any judgments that you might have against you. So it's just in, in 2021, Paul, cyber liability insurance, in my view, is just a cost of business. No different than having fire insurance was 50 years ago. A company in the somewhere in the world today needs to have cyber liability insurance. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, so in um, I looked up some stats before this, and in 2017, CSLOnline.com said your cybersecurity budget should be seven to ten percent of your budget. Uh, in 2021, I couldn't find an exact website, but uh, just skimming it, uh, they were saying there was going to be an increase of ten percent to the cybersecurity budget. In the past, say five years, um, how has cybersecurity insurance changed, uh, and also your opinions changed? 
the, the main thing about it that's changed in five years, Paul, is the accessibility and availability of cyber liability insurance. When I first tried to source this kind of insurance for a client, it was really hard to find it. But now, without joking, I say to clients, call the person who provides your homeowner's insurance and say, I'm starting a new business and I need cyber liability insurance. Oh, nice. And your homeowner's person can typically put you in touch with somebody, a broker or an agent or the, their company itself can soar, help you source cyber liability insurance. So the main answer to your question is accessibility and availability. Second is the costs have come down. Premiums on cyber liability insurance used to just be horrific, tens of thousands of dollars a year. But because now underwriters can quantify the risks better, because we know what the risk profile looks like, we know what's going to have to happen. You're going to have to send out certified letters. You're going to have to defend a class action lawsuit. You're going to have to hire lawyers. Underwriters like that because they can quantify the risks, right? So the costs of cyber liability insurance are coming down, second. Third, the policies are much more comprehensive. I won't name any names, but there are really good cyber liability policies that, that contemplate both like a ransomware attack or just a, an actual incursion, liabilities by former employees. So the, the breadth of the policies now, Paul, is, is much better than it was five years ago. So to answer your question, I think one, availability, two, cost, and three, the scope of the coverage is much better now than it was five years ago. It's just an indispensable part of any any business operation in 2021 and going forward because of the internet and because everybody's data is in the cloud. You know, you brought up um, possible damage or breaches because of employees, former employees. Uh, there was the uh, CFAA case. Can we talk about that? You sent me a link a while ago, uh, right. a couple days ago. Let's let's talk about that. Very good. And, you know, that's a good topic for us to, to sort of wrap up our podcast on, Paul. There is a federal law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's a criminal federal statute that makes it illegal for someone to access a protected computer without authorization. That's what the statute says. And so the cases have construed that in any number of ways. A classic example would be you fire an employee. The employee is instructed to return all passwords, key fobs, and other mechanisms by which they could access the network. The employee does not return those things. The employee is angry. Two days later from home, they access the company network and inject some malware or harm the network in some way. That's a classic fact pattern under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Unauthorized access to a protected computer network, right? Former employee using a password they shouldn't have. Well, there's a recent Supreme Court decision that helps us understand a very important part of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Previous to this Supreme Court decision, the law seemed to imply that you could use the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or the CFAA, against an employee who just had bad motives. They were angry, and, and that would be a hook to sue them, either civilly or criminally, under the CFAA. Supreme Court clarified, and this is interesting for our listeners, you can't just have a bad motive. So you can't just say that employee had a bad motive. You have to prove that they exceeded their access or exceeded their permissions and their authority when they access the network. So it makes it more important for our listeners who have companies with employees, and most do, to be mindful of the training, the procedures, the notifications, and the clear delineation of what exceeds access to the network so they can invoke the CFAA if they need to, Paul. It's a good question and an important case. So you're saying an employee that even though they might have access to the network and they don't have, um, but they have also permission to files because maybe the company didn't lock down certain files and just maybe the file says um, CEO and you're not the CEO, so basically you're not supposed to go there, but they do, 
you're saying that now um, they can be held liable or accountable for, for accessing that even though they, they didn't were, have a bad motive. They didn't have a bad motive. Even though they didn't have a bad motive, yeah. So it's an interesting case. Well, Paul, I see that our time is almost up here for today's installment of the Holly Troxel podcast. Sure, glad to be working with you, Paul. Yeah, it's good to, to see you, for have sure. Have you here at the firm and helping keep us and our clients safe in this crazy cyber world out there. Any closing thoughts, Paul Wilch? Just stay safe and keep patched. Stay safe and keep patched. I'm going to make up T-shirts That's that say horrible. that, Paul. That's <laughs> tremendous. All right. Thanks very much, Paul. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Brad.